Hello and welcome to our latest podcast in our sustainability series. Delighted you could join us for the first podcast of 2024. I'm Matt Townsend, Global Co-Head in our International Environment, Climate and Regulatory Law Group. So today's edition, we dust off the crystal ball, we look into the tea leaves and we draw upon the expertise of our global team who are going to share with us their predictions concerns and thoughts for what lies ahead on the sustainability agenda across the world in 2024. And that panel is uh, spanning the globe. So I'm joined by Ken Rivlin, who is a partner and my uh, co-head of the Global Environment, Climate and Regulatory Law Group, Gautier Van Tyne, partner based in Brussels, Artur Sauze, a partner based in Paris, Tom Darden, who's a counsel in our London office, and Ing Pung Chin, who is a senior knowledge lawyer based in London. So welcome to our panellists. Delighted you could join us. Let's dive in. And what I want to do is really focus on a few themes and kind of scene setters, and then look at some of the detail behind each of those for the year ahead. And of course, as we all know, 2024 is the year of elections around the world, US presidential election, India, as we know about, and of course, we've got the European parliamentary elections coming up, which is going to be an interesting test of support for the populist right or not, as the case may be. And that may have an influence on the sustainability agenda. So we're going to touch on uh, those themes in particular. Let me start with the US, though. And first of all, uh, if I could bring in Ken. Ken, perhaps you can just talk to us, help us kind of set the scene as to where you see this kind of tension that we're witnessing across the US. We saw it in 2023 it's likely to continue for 2024 but this kind of political backlash at a state level this tension uh, being driven from the red states in particular around esg perhaps you could label it the weaponizing of esg just um share with us some thoughts if you could around that and how you see that shaping the landscape thanks very much matt yes 2024 promises to be very very interesting the so-called anti-ESG feeling permeating a number of U.S. states is manifesting in over 100 pending proposals across the country. For example, Florida passed legislation in 2023 that prohibits banks and other financial institutions from considering non-financial factors when making investing decisions and from implementing what it calls social credit scores when assessing borrowers and other financial counterparties. Just last week, Governor DeSantis, who recently dropped out of the presidential primaries on the Republican side, pledged to crack down on violations of this law. Proposed legislation in New Hampshire would have made it a felony punishable by up to 20 years in prison for state officials to knowingly use ESG criteria when making investment decisions. This law didn't pass, but it does reflect the mood in some quarters. In Texas, a 2021 law called on state pension plans to divest from firms deemed to be hostile to fossil fuels. The following year, the state issued a blacklist that named over 300 funds as prohibited partners for investment in Texas. While there are some permitted exceptions, as well as examples of some funds being improved for certain investments, state leaders are now calling on state agencies in Texas to be sure to follow the spirit of the law by steering opportunities away from perceived anti-fossil fuel actors, whether or not they're on the blacklist. Now, states are not acting alone. In the U.S. House of Representatives, Republicans have proposed a so-called guardrail act, which essentially would require the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, to expressly provide 
that issuers are required to only disclose information that would be material to shareholder investment decisions and not to disclose immaterial or not clearly material information around climate or other ESG factors. The specific explicit purpose of this rule is to combat the ESG movement by restricting what the authors of this bill describe as politically motivated, non-material ESG-related disclosure. Interestingly, for the Europeans listening, the Act would also require the SEC to assess and issue a report on the detrimental impacts of the EU's Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive and the EU's Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive on U.S. companies, U.S. consumers, U.S. investors, and the U.S. economy. Now, there's also a number of lawsuits in this anti-ESG wave. One of the most prominent ones is a case by the uh, Tennessee Attorney General who sued BlackRock, alleging that BlackRock misled investors about how it used ESG factors in making some of its investments. Now, these are just a few examples, and they are concerning. But while these developments are getting a lot of attention, investment in renewables and the energy transition and a wider focus on so-called impact investing is not going away. Simply, there's too much money to be made and too many commitments agreed for this anti-ESG wave to bring things to a halt. There are several factors in this. One is the simply the, the significant number of jobs and investment that red, that is Republican-leaning states, have been receiving. Slowing down or, or uh, shutting down investment that creates jobs and supports the economy in these states just doesn't make sense, regardless of who's in the White House. And second, you know, focus on ESG really seems to become part of the core thinking and missions of many of the world's largest corporations and financial institutions. Some may buy into the idea of a broader corporate purpose and creating shareholder value, but really many have now simply concluded that good business means embracing and driving new technologies uh, and exploiting them, maintaining sustainable and resilient supply chain, treating employees fairly, operating under a governance model that is reasonably transparent and smart, about managing risk, and these kinds of businesses are just more likely to be profitable over the long term. Thanks very much, Ken. Um, and, and final and obvious question, of course, is in uh, presidential election year, if Trump is re-elected, I mean, how significant you think that's likely to be in terms of the energy transition agenda and associated measures for the U.S. as we move forward? Uh, Matt. I figured this would come up sooner or later. Las Vegas oddsmakers are currently predicting a Trump victory. If that happens, then yes, we can expect further anti-ESG and pro-fossil fuel action from the next White House. And recent history says Trump would try to do something. Uh, so when he took office following uh, Obama, one of his first acts was to approve a controversial cross-border permit for what was then a very controversial Keystone XL tar sands project which Obama had opposed. Um, that's just one example, uh, but we can be certain that in a Trump administration, the White House and the executive branch would take some immediate steps to jumpstart oil and gas drilling, uh, oil and gas export, and other initiatives to scale back some of the environmental protection and ESG-related initiatives that the Biden White House has taken. So that's clearly going to happen. But that said, it's going to be very difficult for a second Trump White House to completely unwind many of the steps that have been taking, including in particular the funding and investment and developments under the Inflation Reduction Act. As I noted above, just given how much money is flowing into red, that is Republican states, I just don't see Trump completely turning off the spigot. 
there'll be more uncertainties for sure uh, in permitting, for example. But many of the major oil producers in the U.S. are now beginning to exploit the IRA, driving renewables and the clean tech aspects of their business, investing heavily and really taking advantage of many of the initiatives and incentives that the uh, IRA has provided. And as those initiatives continue to bear fruit, the Trump administration may not throw more money that way, but it's just not likely to stop it cold either. Um, there's a lot more I could say about Trump, but why don't I stop there and hand it back to you, Matt? Very good. Okay. Thanks, Ken. We'll come back to many of those themes, I think, as we go through the podcast. Let me turn, if I can then, to Gautier from an EU perspective. I touched upon the parliamentary elections coming up. I think we've also got a dynamics in the Council of Ministers that set a very tight budgetary control on the agenda. That needs to be negotiated with the European Parliament. So how much focus can we expect to see on the budgetary constraints and how much is that likely to thwart the EU's energy transition ambitions? And then I, I think let's just talk about that. And I guess the second question is then the impact of the parliamentary elections and any thoughts you have on that, Gautier? All right, great. Just to start with, the EU Council of Ministers have set their priorities for the next five years, so coming as of the new elections. And whereas in the previous five years, there was a primary role for building a climate neutral, green, fair and social Europe as one of the four main points of interest, there's not a single word about anything which has to do with sustainability in the draft political agenda for the next five years. It's security and defense, resilience and competitiveness, energy, migration, global engagement, whatever that is, and enlargement. And so sustainability has gone off the radar, apparently, from the political agenda, at least. And it has actually also translated into what the EU finance ministers have been agreeing at the end of last year, but it still needs to be negotiated with the parliament. Now, one thing, yesterday, a study showed that the EU will have to invest 40 trillion euros by 2050 to decarbonize its economy. So that's actually equivalent to roughly 10% of the current GDP. A lot of money. But for a lot of countries, that will be very difficult, specifically since those finance ministers from the council have made a new budget deal, which will require every country to make sure they have a four-year, some countries will have seven-year fiscal plan, together with the commission, with a number of very important restraints in them. So first of all, those rules will determine that after that four or seven year fiscal plan, the deficit should be at maximum 1.5% of GDP. And countries with a deficit between 1.5 and 3 will need to decrease and quickly. Secondly, the fiscal rules will also require a minimum debt reduction for countries with debt levels above 60% of their GDP. And countries with a debt ratio between 60 and 9% must reduce their debt ratios by 0.5% points annually for the whole duration of fiscal plan. Sounds very fascinating. Also, you have an excessive deficit procedure, which requires countries that are above 3% to decrease with 0.5% per year of GDP. What does this have to do with the transition? Well, one of the requirements or one of the demands that had been lodged with the finance ministers was to say, but in that 0.5% that we have to decrease every year, please take out two things, borrowing costs, which are very high, so interests, and any green investment expenditure. What did it make to the final agreement? Borrowing costs are out of that reduction obligation, but green investment expenditures are not. That actually will mean that if you would apply those rules as strict as they have been set, 
that over the next year alone, EU governments will have to save at least 100 billion euros. If you look at countries, France would be 26 billion, Italy 25 billion, Spain 14 billion of euros that it will be unable to spend. And that is really, for me, one of the great impediments to realizing the green ambition, specifically in the Green Deal and the green transition, because countries will have no money to spend and the ministers have blocked any way out of the fiscal regime to allow spending for green transition. Gauthier, okay, thanks very much. Actually, quite significant uh, constraints then, potentially. Can I just pick up on the other point about uh, the parliamentary elections? I mean, just in headline terms, are you anticipating a significant shift in the political makeup of the parliament and that having an impact on the agenda, or is it just too difficult to tell at the moment? It's probably too difficult to tell, but it's a bit... I don't expect anything in Europe to be different from what you see in the rest of the world. But there's a few huge question marks. There are a few countries where you do have indeed a trend specifically among more, say, populist or more far-right kind of politicians to really question everything which has to do with sustainability. Many of them don't believe in climate change and are certainly not willing to sacrifice any type of budget, any type of rule, any type of competence to enhance or to enable green transition. So if there is a strong representation of more of those groups, that may definitely have an impact. That combined with the fact that I actually call it more traditional groups, even the groups in the European Parliament, which are traditionally more Christian Democrats, more liberals, more socialists, more Greens, even there you feel a kind of Green Deal fatigue that people say, we have a Green Deal now, we've set everything we need to do, let's now implement, and especially let's not go to our constituencies announcing new rules. Even today and, and the past couple of days in France, in Belgium, the Netherlands, you have all these agriculturists claiming that it's on account of Green Deal and decarbonization rules that they are losing income. You see that this is not a good time for politicians to really be talking about how much they will invest in green transition and how many new rules they would want to impose in the next five years. So I think there will be an impact irrespective of the actual outcome of the elections. The trend now is to minimize anything which has to do with green deal, decarbonization and transition. Yeah, interesting. We see the same dynamic actually in the UK over the Labour Party's previous commitment to bending 28 billion on uh, green initiatives. And that is very much a point of focus in the political discussions. So interesting dynamics. Artur, can I just turn to you then, please? Obviously, we had COP28 at the end of last year, very much mixed views about whether it was a great success or a part of the journey, as it were. One of the headlines to come out of that was the tripling of renewable energy capacity by 2030. Obviously, the very sensitive topic about fossil fuel phase-outs and the language in the final agreement. What's your sense as we move towards the next COP? Or is it just too early to say what that kind of pathway now looks like and in particular what's going to be the areas of focus? Well, thanks, Matt. Obviously, COP28 was a major milestone last year. But, uh, you know, as always, for businesses, at the beginning of 2024, I think what will matter most is the implementation of these decisions at regional and national level. And to highlight this, obviously, there could be many topics to talk about. But I think let's take one, as you mentioned, that's the goal of, of tripling renewable energy capacity by 2030. Because on the bright side, this is one of the, uh, we should say, few areas where we see real progress. I think actually the International Energy Agency very recently reported 
that there was a massive expansion uh, in renewable power last year and that actually that could potentially put us on a path to achieve the trend that the COP28 has set, in particular with PV leading the charge, actually. But obviously, there's kind of the flip side to that, and you mentioned it as well, is that to some extent, the rise of renewables will depend on the phase out of, of fossil fuel. And of course, in that respect, from a media perspective, this was the most covered point with obviously a real a drama. And I think it's worthwhile reading again, you know, the key sentence, because for a lawyer, you can, of course, see what's not in the language and also the compromises. So now the final sentence was, transitioning away from fossil fuels and energy system in a just, orderly, and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050. So that's obviously now that raises the question on how actually we do that. And that's my point here. Practical implications remain a bit elusive. And actually, we've seen recently some oil and gas majors announce uh, scaling back of their strategy to roll out renewables. So I said that for the next COP29 in Azerbaijan, the key points to look will really be the implementation phase. And just bouncing back on what uh, you and Gauthier have just said, will we see that fatigue in the EU and elsewhere kind of trickle into the COP system? I think that's something to watch for in 2024. Lotte, thank you very much. Well, talking about fatigue, let's just change folks a little bit into the second area I want to talk about briefly. And that's the topic of data and reporting. And this is uh, certainly it was the flavor of the year for 2023. Question is, will that continue? There is an awful lot happening across the EU uh, and indeed globally on this. This is very much a recurrent theme when we all talk to our clients on the topic. So perhaps here, let me start with Ingpeng, if I may. Ingpeng, give us a give us a kind of sense as to where we stand at this a kind of hope of a bit of consolidation here through ISSB rather than the kind of fragmentation reporting that we see but where do we currently stand with that before we then touch on the US and the EU thanks Matt I think you're right that this is going to be a continuing theme in 2024 um regulatory activity is likely to be high in this area of sustainability disclosure and reporting across major jurisdictions globally we can expect to see varying degrees of market fragmentation, even as regulators around the world consider adopting the global baseline standards created by the ISSB. Given differing local needs, it would be unrealistic to expect complete homogeneity across sustainability reporting regimes. So regulations will likely continue to diverge on multiple fronts, including in relation to their level of prescriptiveness, approaches to materiality assessments, and the degree to which non-compliance is monitored or penalised. In the UK, sustainability disclosure standards are due to be created by July, based on the ISSB standards. And also, in the first half of 2024, the Financial Conduct Authority intends to consult on updating its TCFD-aligned disclosure rules to refer to the UK SDS. Across the world, a number of jurisdictions have indicated that they intend to be aligned with the ISSB standards as far as practicable, or will only divert from the baseline only if absolutely necessary. So I think many of our clients will need to be prepared to grapple with multiple reporting frameworks. And over the course of this year, as jurisdiction-specific rules get introduced, they should get a clearer sense of how best to streamline their compliance efforts. Bing Pong, thanks very much. Let me just turn to the US now and Ken. So we've been talking about the um, US uh, SEC disclosure rules for some time. 
just talk to us a little bit about what we can expect to see in 2024 in that regard and also over the California rules. Thanks, Matt. We've been waiting for some time now for the new SEC rules. The SEC is now promising April, but we'll see. Just as a reminder, the new proposed SEC rule would require any domestic or foreign registrants to include certain climate-related information in their registration statements and periodic reports, such as the Form 10-K. This information would include, one, climate-related risks and their actual or likely material impacts on the registrant's business strategy and outlook, two, the registrant's governance of climate-related risks and relevant risk management processes, three, the registrant's greenhouse gas emissions, which for accelerated and large accelerated filers and with respect to certain emissions would be subject to assurances, four, certain climate-related financial statement metrics and related disclosures in a note to its audited financial statements, and five, information about climate-related targets and goals and a transition plan, if any. So fairly far-reaching. The proposal, which came out in the spring of last year, attracted an enormous amount of attention, more than 5,000 official comments, as well as a promise from Republicans to litigate any final rule. The SEC's position is complicated. The European disclosure reporting rules that we've been discussing are complex and far-reaching, and many public companies who would be subject to the SEC rules already subject to these European rules. And it's a real challenge for companies and financial institutions who are now grappling with the current rules from Europe, which are already really quite far-reaching. Uh, we could have a whole seminar just on those. And how they're going to balance uh, compliance with those rules and the SEC rules, I think, is a challenge. The challenge is complicated further by the new California rules. Does California really leapt ahead of the SEC? and is really more in line with what Europe is doing. Uh, there's two rules, the Climate Corporate Data Accountability Act and the Climate Related Financial Risk Law, both of which California passed and which will come into effect in, in just a couple of years. The Climate Corporate Data Accountability Act essentially requires businesses to measure and publicly disclose their greenhouse gas emissions on an annual basis, and they apply to any reporting entity, which is defined as a public or private U.S. business with total annual revenues exceeding $1 billion in the prior fiscal year that does business in California. So one of the questions we often get is, to what extent is this rule territorial? If you're a European business with a subsidiary that does business in the U.S., that has annual revenues exceeding $1 billion in the prior fiscal year, and that does business in California, you're covered. The law itself does not define doing business in California, but there are other state rules in California, including the those issued by the California Franchise Tax Board, which defines doing business in California as one, engaging in any transaction in the state for financial gain, or two, having sales, real and tangible property, or payroll in California that exceeds a certain relatively low threshold. So, you know, I think it's important for any of you listening here, to the extent you have any exposure in the US and do any business in California, to look hard at whether you are covered. The second, paired California rules, the climate-related financial risk law, which essentially requires covered entities to report climate-related financial risks in accordance with the TFRD rules. And so really going a bit beyond, really far beyond what the SEC is likely to do and really more in line with what we already are seeing coming out of Europe. So what does this all mean? The SEC proposal will likely be finalized in April or May of this year, and it will immediately be challenged. And it may or may not ultimately see the light of day, especially if Trump wins in November. In any event, many companies and financial institutions that would be caught by the new SEC rule are, 
or will soon be subject to reporting obligations in Europe and California. And in any event, even without a new SEC rule, issuers subject to SEC rules now must disclose climate risks like any other risks that are material to their financial condition and results of operation. In this environment, it is more important than ever that companies and financial institutions carefully track evolving disclosure requirements and think strategically about how best to comply, be careful to avoid greenwashing claims, and be prepared to be flexible and nimble as these issues evolve. Thanks very much, Ken. That's, uh, that's fascinating. Turning then to the European Union, uh, just to bring Artur back into the discussion. So um, CSRD, very much in focus, particularly in the second half of 2023. What are you seeing, Artur, in terms of emerging market practice, preparedness, and how 2024 is shaping up for clients? Yeah, thanks, Matt. I mean, yeah, we could do like probably two or three podcasts just on that topic. Obviously, many of us have been involved in assisting clients on CSRD. I think 2023 was clearly the year when companies discovered CSRD, what this is about, if they are covered, when they will be covered, uh, certainly that triggered their attention. But it's also the year where they discovered more specifically what the standards for reporting are going to be. And it's been kind of a horror show, to be honest, for many of them, because when you kind of open the book of the SCRS, uh, the European uh, Sustainability Reporting Standards, it's so massive, so detailed, that it's, uh, it's really made a lot of companies understand what kind of work lies ahead. And I think many of them, as we've seen, have started the so-called materiality assessment to kind of understand where they stand at the moment. And in 2024, that work is going to continue with the first group of companies having to actually do reporting very soon. So I think, yes, CSRD very clearly is a key topic for many, many companies, not only you know, traditional European companies, but obviously global groups with significant EU operations. Thank you, Arthur, and that, that I think is absolutely the case. So that's likely to continue and bring into sharp focus, as you say, what sustainability reporting of the future is actually going to look like in many jurisdictions. Okay, Ingpang, what other trends and challenges do you see coming up in the year ahead? Thanks, Matt. There are three particularly challenging data reporting and disclosure areas that businesses need to pay attention to namely Scope 3 greenhouse gas emissions, transition plans, and nature. These are critical for tracking progress and identifying where cost correction is needed to meet sustainability commitments. However, high-quality comparable data is currently lacking in these areas. In 2024, we will see strong efforts to rectify these important data gaps. Turning first to Scope 3 data, Scope 3 emissions can account for 80 to 95% of the total value chain of an organization's footprint. However, there are many challenges associated with Scope 3 emissions quantification and reporting. In terms of what to expect in this regulatory area, first, until standardization in Scope 3 reporting is achieved and better solutions are devised, businesses will need to rise to the challenges of making decisions and disclosures based on emissions data that is less than perfect. The question of whether to mandate Scope 3 reporting has been agonised over at jurisdictional level, and this is said to be a key sticking point holding up the finalisation of the USSEC's climate disclosure rule. Second, the Scope 3 reporting landscape is likely to see fragmentation and the exercise of subjective value judgments. However, it is likely that businesses will increasingly impose contractual requirements to gather and share validated Scope 3 data. 
Third, a big step forward is needed for organisations to be ready for when Scope 3 reporting may take on a mandatory footing. This might be through embedded emissions reporting under carbon border adjustment mechanisms or through disclosing good practice transition plans, which, according to the UK Transition Plan Task Force, should consider Scope 1 to 3 emissions. So turning now to transition plans, various market studies have found that available transition plan disclosures are often inadequate and vary in detail and quality. Yet, corporate transition plans are a very important data source which underpins the transition plans of financial market participants. This means that transition planning is much more than a compliance tick box exercise. It will increasingly impact on approaches to investor stewardship and on investees' access to capital. This is particularly significant for those operating in hard-to-abate sectors. With the publication last year of the UK Transition Plan Task Force Disclosure Framework, companies should familiarise with that structure to create credible and robust plans. In 2024, we can expect to see investors come under greater pressure to require corporates to develop robust transition plans. But there are also regulatory forces at play. Transition plan-related requirements are already found in the ISSB standards, the EU CSRD, and soon the EU CSDD. Also, the European Central Bank is currently consulting on what a risk-based transition plan entails in the prudential space. We're also awaiting UK consultations on new guidance for listed companies' transition plan disclosures and new requirements for the UK's largest companies to disclose transition plans if they have them. We may therefore increasingly see transition plan-related requirements shift onto a mandatory footing in due course. As Scope 3 data and credible transition plans become more available, institutional investors and corporates will be held to greater account and be exposed to higher risks of challenge for their strategic business and investment decisions. Turning finally to nature-related reporting, analysis by the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures concluded that a significant amount of nature-related metrics and data already exist. But critical challenges remain around standardization of methods and comparability. The demand for decision-useful nature-related data will grow quickly, and there are a few contributing factors for this. First, reporting requirements involving nature-related data are starting to apply. Entities reporting on the ISSB's climate-related disclosure standards may start to disclose at a nexus of climate and nature. In addition, pursuant to the EU CSRD, disclosures will be made on biodiversity and ecosystem matters if they are assessed to be material. In any event, the process for identifying and assessing materiality must be disclosed. Second, we'll soon find out whether the ISSB will prioritise a potential standard-setting project on biodiversity, ecosystems and ecosystem services. The ISSB will look to the TNFD's recommendations for this purpose. And finally, ahead of COP16 in October this year, countries will produce updated national biodiversity strategies in view of the 2030 targets under the Global Biodiversity Framework. This includes a target for countries to take measures to encourage and enable businesses to disclose their risks, dependencies and impacts on biodiversity. So it looks like it will only be a matter of time before nature-related reporting requirements get rolled out across jurisdictions, whether in annual reports, transition plans, or in other contexts. Yingpeng, thank you very much. Well, so sustainability data and reporting is certainly not an area where anybody should be feeling fatigue. It's a question of uh, gearing up for another year of activity by the sounds of it. 
The third theme I want to focus on just briefly is around supply chains. Again, very much in focus over the last 12, 18 months. Let's look ahead and perhaps Artur, can you talk to us a little bit about European proposals long announced on environmental and human rights due diligence? Sure, Matt. Well, CSRD did not trigger a lot of debates at the time during the legislative process, but the key EU legislation uh, with respect to supply chain due diligence, now we call it CS3D, some people call it CS, you know, DDD, um, did trigger a lot of debate. And before we go into that, I think it's interesting to know the reason why. And probably one of the reasons is the fact that there are already national legislation on this topic, for example, in France, and there is already quite a lot of litigation. And I think companies have become quickly aware that this is an important topic. We've seen litigation in France, for example, in 2023 was an interesting uh, year because there was actually the first conviction of a French company on the basis of the French uh, legal regime. So maybe let's say just a few words for our listeners who may not be fully aware about what there is in this SES Triple D. Well, briefly summarize, the main effect is to introduce new obligations for EU, but also non-EU companies active in the EU, which will basically have to adopt and implement due diligence policies and processes which aim at identifying, addressing adverse uh, human rights and environmental impacts. So the big difference with disclosure, and I think it's a key point here, is you do not only have to disclose information to stakeholders, you also have to tell the stakeholders exactly how you intend to mitigate the potential adverse effects. And that's obviously a big difference because it creates liabilities for the in-scope companies. And not only for the perimeter of the company itself, because as you mentioned, it's about supply chain. So you have to look at the subsidiaries, the business relationships, and the whole value chain. So that's obviously a bit scary for companies because they're not necessarily used to look at this perimeter. Just a couple of things to highlight in that legislation, which, you know, were the subject of a lot of debate. There was the question of the extent to which directors may be found liable. At the end of the day, what comes out of that is probably more limited than some had feared. The sanction aspect, on the other hand, is still quite developed in the final text. Let's mention briefly that there will be, contrary to existing national regimes, uh, dedicated authorities in each member state to look at this in terms of enforcement. So we should expect not only NGOs, as is the case now, to trigger some action, but also member states themselves. And there will also be, and NGOs will be happy about that, a civil liability regime that will give a basis to go after companies and try to seek compensation. So I think really on top of CSRD is kind of the next step, which will really keep companies busy in the year ahead. Oh, so thank you very much. And indeed it will. Gautier, just turning to you, if I may, as we all know, the energy transition is and will continue to drive heavy demand for critical minerals. So there's been a lot of focus and debate around the resilience of those supply chains and security of supply. Do you see any kind of interesting developments, dynamics playing out in 2024 in that regard? Absolutely. Because as you may know, the EU is in dire need of critical materials and critical minerals, but is not a producer. And so in order to tackle that problem, Council and the Parliament have reached a provisional deal on this act, um, which will establish a framework that will ensure a secure, sustainable supply of critical raw materials. What is important to understand is when we talk about supply chains here, 
it's a bit different from what you just heard from Arthur because the CS3D is also supply chain related, but that's really about taking accountability and responsibility for actions which happen in your supply chain. This type of supply chain regulation is completely different. And it starts really from the idea that these critical materials are not just critical because they are scarce, they are critical because they have a strategic economic importance for key sectors of the EU economy. They are highly import dependent on the number of very particular countries. And the lack of alternatives to the materials really make them unique. And I don't want to be cynic, but actually makes that, in that case, the focus is not on human rights and environmental protection, but is really on supply of security. Now, the EU will have a demand for rare earth that will actually increase sixfold by 2030. It will increase sevenfold by 2050. And to tackle that, this Critical Raw Materials Act identifies a list of 34 critical materials, of which 17 are strategic raw materials. And that list is actually the basis for a number of rules that will be implemented as of next year and the year after. Now, the EU, we all know that they will, we will never be self-sufficient. The goal is to diversify supply, knowing that, for instance, China is currently a provider of 100% of the EU supplies of heavy rare earth materials. Turkey provides 98% of uh, boron. South Africa provides 71% of all platinum needed in the EU. And so to reduce that dependency, one of the focuses is to try to enhance EU extraction. There's not a lot possible, but at least 10% of the EU's annual consumption should come from EU extraction. Processing, at least 40% of the EU's annual consumption from EU processing is the goal. And EU recycling, at least 25% of the EU's annual consumption should come from domestic recycling. And when it comes to external sources, there will be a mechanism that will try, and I'll be very careful, try to monitor that no more than 65% of the EU's annual consumption of each of those strategic raw materials at any relevant stage of processing comes from a single third country. Now, apart from those, they wish lists. What is important for businesses in that Critical Raw Materials Act? On the one hand, is that, and you may have heard this before in other types of initiatives, uh, also in the Net Zero Industry Act, is a focus on making permitting easier for certain strategic operations. Uh, what this act will do is unifying timings for permit procedures, not process, but timing. So 27 months for extraction projects, 15 months for processing and recycling projects. And also, and here comes a supply chain uh, element actually again, is companies, large companies that are exposed to shortages of strategic raw materials in strategic technologies. And think about battery manufacturers, hydrogen producers, renewable energy generators, data transmission, storage, aircraft production. They will have an obligation to regularly carry out the risk assessment of their supply chain of strategic raw materials, which they then have to present to their board of directors, mapping where the materials come from, what can affect their supply, and what the vulnerabilities of the supply disruptions are now. Final texts have not been approved yet. So it's difficult to understand whether you would have like a similar type of liability regime as the one that is currently envisaged in the CS3D, as I've to explained. But it's very clear that this will also have an obligation, maybe direct or indirect, maybe forced by stakeholders or shareholders to adapt supply chains and sourcing strategies to align with this act's requirements. And there will be an increased monitoring reporting requirement and again, it will lead to potentially increased costs, potential disruptions in supply chain, but also potentially liability. And so again, as to this theme, 
it's a different type of animal, but it's really all about of getting access to and ensuring that the EU and individual companies are not over-dependent in their supply chain of critical raw materials of one or just a small group of countries. Okay, Gaucho, thanks very much. Finally, on this theme of supply chains, I just want to talk just briefly and to bring Tom Dardenne into the discussion on deforestation. Tom, talk to us a little bit, if you can, about what you think 2024 will hold as regards European deforestation regulation and, and uh, similar UK initiatives, please. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Matt. So, yes, deforestation is, is what I would like to quickly talk to you about. A notable area of supply chain law that we're expecting to see gain momentum in 2024 is regulation aimed at halting and reversing deforestation and forest degradation by 2030, which trend is, in our view, linked to the, the COP28 global stock take decision, which emphasised the importance of conserving and protecting and restoring nature and ecosystems whilst also achieving the Paris Agreement's temperature goals. So there are sorts of things and commodities which we expect to be targeted by laws in this area, things like cattle, cocoa, palm oil, soy, coffee, rubber, wood. And indeed, all of these commodities are already targeted by the EU's Regulation on Deforestation-Free Products, or EUDR, which was published in the, the official journal last June. The EUDR's central provisions will start to apply for medium and large undertakings from the, the 30th of December 2024. So we expect to see a ramping up of businesses that are impacted by this in the next 12 months. The EUDR's objectives are simple enough in headline terms. Uh, it's basically stopping certain commodities and products from being placed on the EU market or exported from the EU unless they're deforestation free. But the issue is, is that the practical obligations connected to this end objective are extensive. And they include duties to, for example, establish and implement robust due diligence systems and processes, which in turn requires data to be sought on where commodities are being sourced from their geolocations, details of suppliers, customers going right through supply chains, and evidence that the, the products are ultimately deforestation free and otherwise legally compliant. There are, of course, other things as well, like publicly reporting on the, the measures that have been taken, implementing actual policies, written policies in relation to mitigating and managing risks of non-compliant products, and also ensuring that messages are communicated right through supply chains and resolving issues linked to the same. But the, I think that the key message from my side is, is that businesses that have direct obligations under the EUDR should be planning for these now. They should also look out for the European Commission's implementing acts on this later this year, which will assign the risk classifications to countries of production, because these risk levels will effectively be used to determine the extent of the due diligence obligations in any given case, and therefore potentially influence businesses' decisions on where to source their sort of raw materials from. Thanks very much, Tom. And just super briefly, on the UK position, where do we stand on that? Yeah, yeah. So the, the UK has basically adopted what it, it, in my view, ordinarily does, which is play its usual game of let's see what the EU does first and, and look at how that gets on, uh, which if being generous affords it the advantages of second mover status. But in December of last year, 2023, the UK government announced its proposal for a, a forest risk commodities scheme which is expected to require, amongst other matters, in-scope large businesses, i.e. with a global annual turnover of 50 million or more, to uh, establish and implement due diligence systems to prevent the use of so-called forest risk commodities in their UK commercial activities. 
I think from my perspective that the key will be seeing exactly what the details are and the actual timings for the introduction of secondary legislation in this regard to operationalise the scheme is less clear. All we know so far is, is that the government has said it will happen when parliamentary time allows. Very good. OK, thank you, Tom. Well, we've got a few minutes left. I've got two themes still to touch upon, so uh, we are going to canter through these. First of all, no kind of look forward on sustainability can leave behind the issue of carbon pricing and carbon trading and related measures. So just two things I want to pick up on here. First of all, let me start with Gautier if I can. Obviously, a lot happening across Europe in this regard in terms of carbon leakage measures, etc., my question is, is whether 2024 is going to be the year of CBAM? As of today, I can say it will. Because as of today, this is the last day that potential future importers of CBAM goods will have to have report their first ever CBAM report. How great is that? Now, that doesn't mean that CBAM already kicks in entirely. It entered actually into force on October 2023. But we're in this current transition phase. The transition phase in which, indeed, there is a reporting obligation. To whom and for what? Very shortly, because you mentioned carbon leakage is a huge fear of the EU ever since they started with the ETS. Will energy-intensive industries not move out of the EU if they have to spend too much money on compliance with the ETS? And so, consequently, currently under the still existing four phase of the ETS, a number of very energy-intensive industries, which are on that carbon leakage list, get free allowances, not 100%, but there are very complicated rules to allocate those. That will be gradually taken over by the lack of free allowances, because from 2026 to 2034, those companies and industries that get free allowances will gradually get to zero. But the requirement then is obviously that imports will have a carbon price tagged to that through the so-called carbon border adjustment mechanism. So that covers actually a number of goods iron, steel, cement, electricity, fertilizers, aluminum, and hydrogen, and will require the importers of such CBAM goods to submit CBAM certificates, which then correspond to one ton of CO2 equivalent of something which is called embedded emissions. And so those are the direct emissions that are released during the production process of the goods, um, and the indirect emissions released during the production of the electricity used in the production process, make it a bit more complex, iron, steel, aluminium, and hydrogen will only need to be looking at the direct emissions included in the embedded emissions. But what does that mean for this year? Well, this is the first transition year in which the future importers will need to report. They will need to get their status right. They will need to get an authorization application. And come 2026, they will need to start complying. Importantly, and that is maybe another element, a lot of things have been said about whether or not it's WTO compliant. Will there be challenges against the CBAM? Nobody knows. I'm reasonably, but I will be sorry probably in two years when you confront me with this, but I'm reasonably confident that it will survive those challenges. And interestingly also, there are actually a number of CBAM friends around the world. Because if you look at the 50 largest economies in the world, the top 10 of CBAM allies include Japan, Korea, Singapore, Canada, Colombia, Mexico, Vietnam. So the EU is not alone with this initiative. And although we will not have a full test yet, because this is a transition year, it is one of the most important pieces of legislation that probably uh, will be uh, highly relevant in the coming years. Yeah, okay. JC, well, there is our first prediction. So there you <laughs> are. It's taken, it's taken 35 minutes, but that's a prediction. 
I am very tempted to ask you about what a seabound friendly country actually means, but I wait. I'm going to hold off on that. Uh, okay, Tom, can you just in the space of a minute give us your kind of sense as the year ahead on the voluntary carbon markets? We've been talking about this for decades. A lot of focus in the lead up to COP on Article 6 of the Paris Agreement and the mechanisms designed in framework terms there. What is your sense? Are we finally going to see the rule book emerge and trading get properly underway? Uh, <laughs> that's a great question, Matt. Thank you. I thought, I thought you were going to come to me with what's the UK doing on CBAM? I would give you the answer which I gave to the previous question, which is. That'll be way too, way too yeah. easy, Tom. <laughs> Which is basically, we'll take second mover status and take it from there. But voluntary carbon markets, I think 2024 is going to be another hugely important year for them. How would I describe what I see as the the big topic? It's going to be credibility. Credibility, credibility, and credibility. Credibility has always been a key issue for the voluntary carbon markets. And in 2023, this issue came to light on a number of occasions perhaps most notably with the, the various accusations levelled against the quality or or otherwise of uh, various uh, forestry-related credits. I think there are various issues to watch out for here in 2024 that we're tracking. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how AI is used to more accurately support methodologies and tokenization of credits using blockchain technology. But I think what I'm looking at is what the ICBCM's sort of core carbon principles are going to do to the market, if anything, and what the take-up of that's going to be. I'll be looking at how the IC uh, VCM in combination with a range of similar standard setters, including the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative and Science-Based Initiative, will, will look to work together to establish what they are terming an end-to-end integrity framework. And also be looking at the IOSCO consultation on a proposed set of good practices to promote the integrity and orderly function of the, of the markets, which consultation is currently ongoing and expected to close in March. Just finally, specifically on Article 6, and in particular, Article 6.4. I mean, I think my views on it, at least, that the, the COP28 was a bit of a, a damp squib, but no agreement in relation to the outstanding issues is better than a bad agreement. There are, therefore, quite a few operational issues that still need to be ironed out. The big question is, and I think you alluded to this with, with the hit, are these going to be ironed out at COP29? And will we actually get to the point of having a 6.4 is in play come 2025, 2026. So my heart says yes, but my head says no. Very good. <laughs> right. Okay. I'm going to give everybody 30 seconds. We've not talked about litigation. We've not talked about greenwashing. We haven't even touched the topic of taxonomies. So we're going to have to leave that one behind. I'm going to make a prediction that 24 will be a year of taxonomies, but leave it at that. I'm going to start just 30 seconds ago, TA. Is 2024 going to be a big year for climate sustainability litigation? Are we going to see a continued rise in cases being brought? I really believe we will. Because some of us may have thought after 2023, especially if you'd see like what happened in shareholder type of litigation in the UK that was dismissed, that there will be no more future for climate litigation. I think the Dutch, I think it's probably the motherland of climate litigation in the EU, uh, the NGOs have started again. They have started tackling EIG now, but also greenwashing initiatives with the increased tendencies in other countries on really climate-focused reporting and obligations. I really believe it will be a year for climate education. Okay, okay. And greenwashing, of course, we've got the Green Claims Directive emerging on the horizon. So that's definitely something to watch. Okay, 
So there's another prediction. Ken, over to you. This might be an easier prediction to make from a US perspective, continued rise in litigation and greenwashing concerns. What's your sense on that? And particularly, obviously, the we started on the topic of the weaponization of ESG. Are we going to continue to see that in the year ahead? Well, we're going to see a very interesting US presidential election. The two oldest candidates ever, unless something dramatic happens, such as the wild rumors about Michelle Obama potentially stepping in as a candidate to replace Biden. And every year, I predict incorrectly that my New York Mets will win the World Series. But you want to know about ESG. This is what I think we'll see. More anti-ESG legislation and litigation, principally from the red states. Issuance of the SEC climate rule in the spring, followed immediately by a legal challenge. More greenwashing claims and enforcement. Continued shareholder activism action by the federal government before the November elections to formally administer an impossible disperse funding already authorized under the IRA. Some other related issues, we're going to continue to see regulatory enforcement and litigation around PFAS. Among other things, EPA will be issuing a final rule designating PFOA and PFAS as hazardous substances under CERCLA. The Supreme Court is expected to issue a decision scaling back or completely jettisoning the so-called Chevron Doctrine which essentially provided for the courts to defer to the executive branch's reasonable interpretation of ambiguous statutes. This sounds like boring lawyer stuff, but the fact is the Chevron Doctrine has been really one of the main foundations of U.S. environmental law. Whenever the EPA or another federal agency wanted to um, implement rules based on bad drafting by Congress, which is pretty much the rule, uh, as long as their interpretation was reasonable, courts were giving them deference and letting them go. Now, the EPA, among others, will be challenged in court, as they typically are, and they won't have the Chevron deference doctrine to rely on. Supreme Court rule may happen this year. The implications will be felt, though, for years and years to come. Finally, I think we're likely to see continued careful assessment of the voluntary carbon markets, continued green loans and sustainability-linked loans, uh, though not at the same uh, levels that we saw in 2022. I think it's going to be an interesting year. Ken, thank you very much. Okay, well, let, we'll watch that with uh, with keen interest. And then finally, Ing Pan, what's your sense from a UK perspective? FCA has been pretty active when it comes to greenwashing. How would you see the landscape in this regard for the year ahead? Matt, I think in the UK, there are a number of regulatory developments that illustrate the high level of regulatory attention that's continuing on greenwashing. But I'll just touch on one, which is that the FCA's green, anti-greenwashing rule will give the FCA an explicit basis to challenge firms in relation to potential greenwashing. However, it's perhaps unsurprising that as firms get to grips with the rule, responses to the FCA's consultation on the accompanying anti-greenwashing guidance have expressed a range of views, for example, regarding the implementation timeframe, the scope of the rule and the practical implications in particular contexts. Firms should therefore watch this space as the FCA engages with the responses that it receives. However, actually to draw together a few of the themes that I've discussed so far, in 2024, we will hopefully see greater regulatory clarity as to the interplay between taxonomies, corporate reporting frameworks and transition plans, specifically how the former two can be used to create credible and comparable transition plans. Ming Peng, thank you very much. And uh, thanks to all our, our panellists. So how do we sum that up? significant elections coming up and they clearly have the potential to impact the direction of travel, particularly in the US. 
a huge amount of focus continues on reporting. And as Artur has talked about, the curtain has lifted on the CSRD, I think it's fair to say. Watch out for significant reforms, particularly out of Europe, when it comes to supply chains. Those will continue with some gusto, I think our panellists have suggested. We have, through Tom's prediction, got an optimistic note when it comes to carbon markets and, in particular, the Article 6 mechanisms. So quite a lot happening to put better shape around those. And perhaps ending on a slightly negative note, actually, but 24 looks to be a continuation when it comes to litigation and greenwashing concerns. So very much that is part of the landscape. So a very warm thanks to our panellists for joining us and for sharing their thoughts for the year ahead. Thank you for joining us and listening. And we very much look forward to sharing our further thoughts through the sustainability webinar programme in the year ahead. And I should say, finally, this podcast was recorded on the 31st of January. So any references to dates, we pin to the 31st. So thanks again for joining us. Have a good day. Bye-bye.